Lord Jesus, we come before you now. We thank you and praise you that you have given us your word. Lord, we ask that this morning that you would open our hearts and minds, give us the eyes and ears of faith that we might hear, that we might see what the Spirit declares to our church. Lord, would you use your servant this morning to speak the truth, to speak it with effectiveness, to speak it in a way, Lord, that people might hear and believe, that they might respond For those, Lord, who are in need of conviction, would it convict them and draw them to repentance and faith? And, Lord, for those who need to be comforted this morning because they are weighed down and oppressed by their struggles, by life, Lord, may there be words of comfort here which draw them to and remind them of the hope that is found in Christ. In all things, may Christ be lifted up. Lord, may from this pulpit this morning it be said... We came to see Jesus, and he was seen, and he was heard. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would open up in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, we'll be looking at verses actually 3 through 5, but I'm going to read all five verses this morning. Once you're there, you will show me that you are ready to hear, because you'll stand, and we'll be ready to read. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Let me just say this to you, and this is one of the reasons why in in many um, faithful church traditions... We preach through a book of the Bible and not just through selected texts because if you left it to many a preacher, and I'm probably no different, these are the kind of texts you'd probably avoid. These aren't aren't encouraging, uplifting, upbuilding texts, at least not a, a first reading. We don't want to be people who are saying other people are bad or they're they're mean or they do wrong stuff. We live in a culture which prizes tolerance and tolerance of all kinds. So much so is tolerance prided that it has become no virtue. Certainly as Christians, we should learn to care for other people who see things differently and to be tolerant of them as people. But we can never be people who tolerate sin. We can never be people who say it's okay to do those things for that which Christ died. We can never say that. And more so, what Paul is drawing us to here is to remember that Christ died for a reason. He died to set us free from sin. And if God declares something to be sin, then we need to be sure that not only is it sin, but it in no way leads to a way of life which is good and helpful and healthy, much less pleasing and honoring and glorifying to God. 
So as we look at this passage this morning, I want us to realize that we looked at these, la- these first two passages, these first two verses over the last couple of weeks. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And we talked about the fact that as beloved children, we want to imitate our parent, our father. We want to love him. We want to care about his ways. We want to do things which are pleasing for him. Why? Because he loves us and cares for us and prospers us. And in that second verse, we look at the fact that not only does God the Father love us as a father, but his son has come and loved us and gave himself up for us in 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 his place. In other words, what was laid out for us is that God sacrificed his own son for us and Christ himself sacrificed himself for us as our elder brother. What we see here is this whole notion of self-sacrifice, of giving. And now Paul turns and says, but this is the way... Of sin. Sin is not self-sacrificing. Sin is not giving. Sin is always greedy. It's never satisfied. It's always, rather than looking for self-sacrifice, it wants self-indulgence all the time. And so what I want us to begin to look at is, is that Paul is also contrasting the idea of true love, which we've seen in that previous section. This is what love is. That God would give His only Son to die for wicked enemies, haters of God, murderers in their hearts, adulterers. He gave His Son to die for us. To show us what true love looks like. How could we go to a place of false intimacy when what is held out to us is true love? And that's what we see Paul saying here as well, that all sexual morality at some point really is a bait of false intimacy. It is really no intimacy at all, but it holds itself out that somehow you can be united to God. You can be united to another person. You can have have a connection. We even know, for some of you know of an old game show, I don't think it's on anymore, but I think sadly cable television continues to run the reruns of it, is called The Love Connection. And most of the time, if you've ever watched that show, I I did in some of my misspent youth, um, most of the time you were watching that show to watch when there was not a quote-unquote love connection and to watch these two people harass and bash and talk about how incompetent they were at being intimate, at really caring for one another, at really having a love connection, quote-unquote. What we want to see then is this idea that Paul is looking back to something. He's saying, look... There is a reality that God called his people into. They've fallen from that. Christ has come to restore it. How can you go back into what you've been brought out of? What I want us to think about, though, as we move into these words here is this. Adam and Eve lived in the garden temple of Eden. And their whole life, the whole context of their life was lived out in the presence of God. And what we see in that passage of Scripture is something profound when it says, when God brought Eve together, we hear poetry spoken. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then what are we told? The two shall become one flesh. The understanding here that we need to see is, that helps us in this passage is, is that what we should not become is those kind of people who say, so we don't talk about any of that stuff. 
In fact, what I would suggest is, is that the church has failed miserably itself and the watching world because we fail to speak about the truth of how good and wholesome and holy and honorable is marriage and the marriage bed. As we look at this, I want you to have that in mind. Adam and Eve did everything in the presence of the temple garden of God in Eden. And I mean everything in the presence of God. And they were not ashamed. It was beautiful. It was right. It was holy. It was good. How can we say any less of it as we begin to look? Now, you might wonder, you said all that. How do we get to a title like It's Jesus? Just hang on. You'll see. The first thing I want us to notice then in this passage as we look at verse 3 is this. The point is avoid perversion. That's what it's telling you. Get perversion away from you. If there's a right way of things to be done, and there is, then what we need to get away from us is the perversion of it. Again, I want to remind us that all sin and Satan can do is pervert the good things of God. Sin cannot create anything. Sexual immorality is not a creation. It is a perversion of a good thing, which ought to instruct us as we start to think about it. If you look back up at Ephesians 4.19, you'll see that Paul's really going back and picking up a theme he had spoken about there and bringing it now back up as he's moving into another section of this text. He says, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And you'll notice that those type of languages once again brought up in verse three. But sexual morality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. If you drop down, it says, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous or the word could be greedy. That is an idolater. So the idea, that same theme that he had brought up, up in 419, and then had spoken at length there, he now brings up again, partly because what he's wanting to do is, in the previous verses in chapter 4, he really was speaking about how we treat one another. So it was kind of an exterior view. He's now saying, do you understand that this has effects on you as an individual person? Do you understand that, that, that Part of how you live out love to one another is you have to realize you have to be careful and take care of your own way of thinking, your own heart, your own actions. They matter. What you do has consequences. And if you don't take that seriously, then you are of no use to the kingdom of God. In fact, what Paul's going to say is you're cut off from it. So we need to take and think through these words seriously. What Paul is then saying to us is this actions of immorality are to be put away. We're not to do them. Now, don't think here, and this is the problem with, with us, is that we are so perverted that rather than saying, what are the good things that we can do, our general tendency is to always say, well, what are the things we can't do? Rather than thinking about what are all the things we have to do, what are all the ways we might do good and godly things with the good gifts like sex that God has given us, we tend to think, well, what's off limits? Where's the boundaries? Give me the lines. And the problem with that is, is not to say that we shouldn't have boundaries and lines. The problem is, is that what it bestows on us is that our hearts really are bent to do wrong things. That's why we want to know, well, tell me where I can't go. Well, what's acceptable? Well, what's gray? 
And what this passage, and the reason why Paul uses so many different words about sexual morality is he wants to say, look, anything that's a perversion is a perversion. Now, I'm not going to stand up here and tell you what all of them are, but I am going to say this. You need, we have a book in the scriptures that is all about love and sex. It's called the Song of Songs. And it's a song. And it's amazing. And as one professor once told us, he said, everything that you think that book says, that's what it says. And that's your guidelines. That's the beauty of romantic love right there. And that ought to be your guideline. And you shouldn't be thinking about, well, what about this and what about that? Now, does God give us some outlines of things that we shouldn't do? Yes, he does, all through his word. The Old Testament is chock full of things that the people of God were to not do sexually. Don't have this person. Don't have this person. Don't do it with this person. Don't do it with that person. Don't do it outside of this context. And that takes precedence in the New Testament as well. We see it again. This is not rocket science. But what I want you to begin to see is, is that we as Christians, what we need to present and what we need to think about are the good things, the blessed things that we have given to us. That's how our minds need to think. That's how we put away the perverted things. Because, see, if your mind is thinking about, well, I'm not supposed to do this and I'm not supposed to do that, your mind is thinking about what? The perverted things. We're supposed to not think and speak about the perverted things. So the best way to do that is to quit having them on your mind. What you want to put in its place are the good things, the right things, the holy things. The things which are true and beautiful and noble and good. And somewhere I think Paul says that. Book of Philippians. Think on these things. The other thing I want us to notice is, is that the idea here of all of this is that people use language, get their thinking and their actions basically wrapped around seeking to get their own needs met. Now, men and women, I want to say this at the, very, at the very root, and this just becomes something that I want you to understand. Sexual relationships are always about the other person. If you want to know how, just a basic rule of thumb, how not to be perverted in your actions towards another person that you are married to, is the rule of thumb should be, is this serving and caring for this person? Is this something that is beneficial and helpful to them? Does this serve them? Is my attitude in thinking about this them? Books are written, legions of books are written about this topic. And the point is, most of the time, the reason that people struggle in intimacy is often because they don't think about the other person. And when you don't think about the other person, you're perverted. Do you understand that? See, what I want you to really see is, is that all these deviancies that we want to think about, well, these are the perversions, but let's just get right down to the core of it. People who don't think about other people are not being Christian. They're not exuding the realities of what the true lover has shown to us, and that is that he lays down his life for us so that we ought to be willing to lay down our life for another. And what I'm saying to you is that reality should permeate every aspect of the Christian's life, including 
their marriage and all things that come along with it? Am I seeking to serve the other? Now, that's hard. When Paul's telling us to avoid perversion, let's be honest, it's hard. Paul has already said in, his, in, in Ephesians that this is not the way we learned Christ. We've learned Christ in a totally different way. Paul is clear here also, and I want to, before I go to the end of this, I want to be clear that we go to the end of verse 5 and see this as we avoid perversion. There are consequences for our choices. You may be sure, he says, that people who do all these things have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ or of God. And I want to say a brief word about what he's getting at there. What he's getting at there is this. It's not men and women saying that if someone stumbles and falls, if you, if you flub up, if someone falls into a sexual sin, if someone has a one-night stand, that you're cut off. That's it. You have no, that's not what Paul's after here. What Paul's trying to get here is say, those who basically say, I can do what I want the way that I want, when I want, and they consistently live in that type of framework, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ now, nor in the future kingdom of God. See, what Paul's trying to say to you is that people who persist in doing vile, wicked things which hurt themselves and hurt other people, if that's the continuous avenue that their life course takes, at some point you've got to speak the truth. They have no inheritance now, presently. Paul's already talked about We now, as Christians, have an inheritance in Christ, in His kingdom, right now. And that that inheritance, ultimately, the Holy Spirit's been poured into us as a surety that that inheritance will be fully mediated out when Christ returns and turns His kingdom over to God and the kingdom of our Christ becomes the kingdom of our God. So what we see here is this now and not yet wrestling. We live now with an inheritance that we ought to value. This is why we ought to shun those things which would take us away from it. Think about it like this. If you're doing something which is constantly tarnishing your silver, probably what you want to start doing is doing things which stop making the silver get so tarnished. Right? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to keep throwing mud onto the carpet and then having to go clean it up again. And then you walk back in and you throw more mud on the carpet. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And that's basically what Paul is saying. Why do you keep shoveling dirt back into the temple when Christ has come and purged it, cleaned it, washed it clean. What your attitude ought to be is to seek to keep it clean. And the way you do that is by avoiding perversion and then doing this. Pursuing saintly conduct. Look at what Paul says here. He says, these things must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. As I've already said, and I want to go back and say this, the answer to our problems is not a return to Victorian, the Victorian era. The real problem is, is that really if we look at Victorianism and Bohemianism, we kind of have the, the two sides of the problem in many ways. You have the Victorian era which says we don't speak of such things. As a matter of fact, such things are really sinful. And you have the Bohemian revolt against that type of thinking, which says everything that should have some private connotation, well, no, it's not private. It's just thrown out before everybody to look and see. 
And see, we want to say that the gospel does not call us to either one of those. Because what we end up doing is we either end up not speaking about the beauty and the wonder that is the saints of God, that is humanity. We lose the understanding of the nobility to which we were called to and created. Human beings were created nobly with worth and value. And again, I come back and say that if you cannot read the Song of Songs and walk away a Victorian, and in fact, if you read the Song of Songs, you go, this is just embarrassing stuff. You need to repent and pray that God would give you a heart to delight in His Word and to see that lived out in your heart attitude and how you view intimacy and how you view real love, not just between a man and a woman, but we know that at the end of Ephesians 5, where Paul is going, right? He's going to say that marriage between a man and a woman is really not all about marriage between a man and a woman. It really points us to something greater. That is Christ's love and His church's love for one another. And so at the end of the day, we have to say that somehow the Song of Songs fits into that understanding. That Christ looks at His bride and says, See this beautiful form, this shapely church, glorious. And there is nothing profane or vulgar about that. It's something beautiful and holy and right. And we as God's people, as saints, should live in such a way that we delight in the things God delights in. Rejoice in the good gifts God has given. We should be people that it is constantly said of, they love the life that God has given to them. They are not shunners. So what we see then is the reality that what is destroyed and must be destroyed in our minds is this, that somehow physical and spiritual are separated. There is no such thinking in the Bible. My body, my mind, my heart, all are wrapped up in the spiritual. And if you don't believe me, well, then you don't believe in the resurrection of the saints. Because see, resurrection ties us to the fact that if our physical bodies were just a prison cell, if they really didn't matter, if the stuff that happens in the body is just this life, and then we move on to the next, and we get rid of the body, then there would be no need for the resurrection. The soul would be set free, the soul would be cleansed of all sin, and that'd be the end. But that's not the end. We're clearly told that the resurrection, our bodies will be renewed, and we will have corporality. We will be corporeal still. Bodies, spiritual as they are. But they are going to be real, touchable. The reality is, is that intimacy is directly related to our bodies and our souls. Now, how does this then point us to Jesus? Well, here's how it points us to Jesus. What's the answer to this? Because here's the thing I want to say to us. Is avoiding perversion easy? No. And in fact, men and women, I just let you know this, that even when you think you're avoiding perversion... The twistedness of the human heart is so profound and so deep. Jeremiah basically says, The human heart is so wicked, who can plumb its depths? It's so deceitful. Of course, the answer is this. God can. 
And see, that's why I want to say the answer to people struggling in sin is what? It's Jesus. The answer to people who think they've got it together and they really don't, what's the answer to that? It's Jesus. Because what does Jesus do? Jesus confronts pride in you and says, who are you to be prideful? Have you been the true lover? Have you been the obedient son? Have you walked in perfection all your days and all your ways? The answer is no. You have not. And you desperately need a Savior. And to those who have stumbled and fumbled and failed and their stench of their sin rises to heaven and they know it, they beat their breast just like the publican and say, Lord, I am a sinner. Forgive me. They see in Christ one who says, Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see, in this whole category of avoiding sin and living godly, the only way to do such things is to run to Christ. It's to run to Jesus. And the reason for that then becomes clear because what does Paul tell us? What's the answer? We might think in our own heads, well, of course, the answer to dealing with sin is to come up with a very rigid set of rules and regulations which say we don't do this. We look up at the ceiling when we stand in line at the grocery store so we don't look at all those godless half-naked women on these and these unreal men who have muscles that no man should have. Um, they're, they're, be, they're beyond all reasoning. And, and all these type of things that go on, should you do some of those things? Sure. Should you recognize the kind of movies or the kind of music that do things to you which you know are wrong and are hurtful to you? Of course. But that's not what Paul says here. He doesn't give us a long list of the do's and the don'ts. What does he say? Here's the cure. You want to know what the cure is? This is it. Let there be thanksgiving. Isn't that profound? Don't you find that striking that in the middle of all this text of avoid, stay away from, do things which are decent, honoring, the answer to it is thanksgiving. I'm not talking about turkey and dressing, although if you want to provide that in the process, that's wonderful. But what Paul is really getting at here is saying this. The root of thanksgiving is seeing the work and worth of Jesus. That's the root of thanksgiving. The root of thanksgiving is the gospel. The root of thanksgiving is saying that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. That while we were still doing and pursuing wrong, wicked things, Christ said, I will lay down my life for the sheep. I will pay the penalty. I will do what is necessary. I will live the perfect life they can never live. And I will die that cursed, wicked death they can never do. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul sums it up well when he says, God made him who knew no sin. He avoided perversion. He lived the perfect life. God made him who knew no sin to be sin. On our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words... The saintly conduct God has poured into us His Spirit. Think about this, men and women. It's not just called the Spirit. It's called the what? The Holy Spirit. What does He bring when He comes? Holiness. What does Christ give us when we're 
saved by His grace, righteousness. And so isn't it natural that Paul says, you ought to live in the holiness and the righteousness that has been applied to you and is at work in you. How do you do that? By being grateful for all that you've been given in God. See, the root of bitterness, the root of lust, the root of greed is all one and the same. It's dissatisfaction with what I've been given. Dissatisfaction with the state of life that I presently exist in. An unwillingness to accept that God actually knows better what I need than I do. And men and women, if you think that statement is easy for any of us, including the person who's saying it, you need to come back to reality. It is hard. There is nobody in this room that at some point during the day doesn't have a moment where they think, I have no idea why God wants this done. Now, you might not say it that way because you're, you're too spiritual. I mean, we would never say such a thing. But the reality is, is that it crosses our mind. Why is this happening? Well, this is absurd. Well, I need to do something to make sure that this doesn't happen again. As if somehow God doesn't know what he's doing. No, it's hard. And we need to be people who are willing to wrestle through the hard things of life. But think about what our brother Job says. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Think about what God said to Abraham, who had not yet been given a son. Abraham. I am, I am, God is your very great reward. Walk before me. In what way? In a grumbling way? In a, well, we had leeks and mandrakes and meat in the pot back in Egypt. You see, that's what Paul's trying to get at here. Why do you want to go back, Ephesians, to the fertility rites of Diana when what you've been given is union with the living Christ? Why do you want to go participate in all those perverse orgies when what you've been given is a love feast to share with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Why do you want to go back to the perverted when what you've been given is the real and substantial? Now here's the last thing I want to say to us before we go to the conclusion. What we need to be careful of is this, that somehow we hold out to people that in this life, if you become a Christian and you read your Bible and you pray and you do all the things you're supposed to do, that somehow life's just going to become smooth sailing. It's not true. In fact, we're going to find out in Ephesians 6 that we've got to start putting on some armor because it's, we've got to load up for bear because it's coming. Being a Christian is hard. It also, we need to, in that same vein, think about this too. We should never have the attitude that somehow that what we have in this life fully satisfies. Nothing in this life fully satisfies. And see, this is the problem for both Christians and non-Christians. is We keep looking for somehow sex and drink 
and relationships and everything else to fully satisfy us in this life. And the bottom line is they cannot. And they're not supposed to. Because ultimately what we're looking for is not a city on this earth. What we're looking for is not found here. What we're looking for is a city whose foundations are not made with human hands, but made by the living God Himself. What we are looking for is a place where we only look in a mirror dimly now, but one day face to face. One day this meal that we will soon participate in, which is truly satisfying and gives us sustenance to continue to press on, will be fully satisfying. We will sit around the table where our relationships will be sin-free. And we have no idea what that will feel like or taste like. But we get a glimmer as we show up in this place week in and week out. We get a glimmer. Surely and truly, God gives us a taste of His Word and of His sacrament. We enter into the heavenly realms and we taste and we see and are reminded once again that He is good. And we fall to our knees and say, thank you. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, that all things might be made new. In conclusion then, if you've come down this morning, if you've come here and you're weighed down, this is a life that you're pursuing, that you are seeking to find your satisfaction in things created rather than in the Creator, the Redeemer, the Savior of His people, then I ask you even now to pray something like this. Lord Jesus, I am so convicted and burdened by the fact that my sin is is not forgiven. That I am living and pursuing a lifestyle which is perverted and away from your goodness. And I desire right now to embrace Christ as my Lord and Savior and to have His healing salve applied to my life. Please give me strength and courage from this day forth to walk in newness of life and not to go back to the ways that He has saved and called me from. If you pray a prayer like that, I believe God would be delighted to hear it and receive you into His kingdom, that you might join with us in that inheritance of the saints. For those of us who do believe, do not take this warning, this exhortation lightly. Do not think, do not sit around and think, young men and women, that you can just play around with sexuality, that you can play around and horse around and joke around with things that are holy, God will have nothing to do with it. Do not act like just, just because you've been baptized and catechized and sanitized and all these other great things you might have had, that somehow that you can play fast and easy with God's grace. His grace has been given to us. We ought not be foolish with it. And one of the key ways we're not foolish with it is we take seriously that each person in this room is made in the image of God and there's nobility and worth in them. And we ought not make jokes about people's sexuality. We ought not make jokes which lead people to perverse attitudes. We ought not do such things. Those type of things ought not be among the people of God. And so we see both Savior 
and king. Savior to save us from our sins, but king to rule and restrain us from perversity, which leads to debaucherous lifestyles. May God deliver us and lead us and strengthen us as we run the race. And remember the answer to all of it, if you want to know, it's Jesus. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. Amen.